Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, would you ever think of becoming an assistant lighthouse keeper? The Canadian Coast Guard is looking to lure people to remote parts of British Columbia with promises of oceanside living and a million-dollar view. He asked a retired lighthouse keeper what that life is really like. You never get a second chance to make a first impression, the saying goes. So how do you make a good one? Nick Boothman knows. He's author of How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less. He says it's simple, and he joins us to tell us how. We look at the legal turmoil actor Alec Baldwin finds himself in. He now faces an involuntary manslaughter charge in New Mexico after cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed on the set of a Western called Rust back in 2021. She was struck by a live round of ammunition fired by a prop gun being held by Baldwin. But first, the CEO of one of Canada's major oil sands companies says the transition to a net zero economy could be a land of opportunity and a major job creator for provinces such as Alberta. We find out how and why. First up tonight, it is probably the most important and divisive economic issue and debate that we're having in this country right now. How do we continue to be an energy producer and exporter and still work to meet emissions reduction targets and ultimately help fight climate change? Whatever your personal position is on the science of climate change, on the impact of the energy industry has on what impact it has on it, whether you think we should shut it down entirely or leave it alone completely, governments, what major investors really, in other words, the money, has already looked into the future and decided that we are transitioning now. It's starting to a lower carbon future. Just look at what the big pension funds are doing. Look at what the big, big money, the black rocks of the world are doing. They're looking to this and they're thinking there's money to be made here. And once that begins, it's done. It's happening. It just depends whether we get on that train or not. And it seems like we really should. The issue is, of course, what what happens between now and then. And that's where we get into this really turbocharged term, just transition. Um, you know, that term itself has, has means all kinds of things to all kinds of people, but let's just, let's just call it a transition and see if it's equitable. Okay. How would we leave it at that? It, it is, you know, how do we do that? That's the $105 billion a year question. That's the amount the oil and gas industry is said to bring into this country by some estimates to the GDP. If you listen to Alberta's premier, Ottawa is planning to decimate the energy sector and destroy well-paid jobs. Armageddon says Danielle Smith. When you listen to the Prime Minister, he's essentially telling Albertans to trust him and his government that this transition won't leave them behind. Up to 2.7 million jobs will be eliminated across Canada through just transition, and that's because it has nothing to do with transition at all. It's about eliminating entire sectors of our economy and hundreds of thousands of jobs deemed too dirty by Ottawa elites. I think it would be great if Alberta were to realize that this is part of moving forward. We've seen for a while Alberta hesitating around investing in anything related to climate change. Yeah, I think there's a role for provinces with surpluses and with the capacity to be investing in their future and their their workers' future. So is it really going to destroy jobs? I mean, that's really what it boils down to, right? The economy, unless this is just about politics, unless this is just about wedge issues, divisiveness, empty rhetoric, getting elected, maybe, maybe. One of the interesting voices in all this is the very companies that stand to lose the most in what is perceived by opponents of this transition to be an outright attack on Alberta's energy sectors. That's the energy companies themselves. 
And that's where this gets interesting. In an interview with the Canadian press, uh, Sonovas' CEO was quoted as saying that six oil, the six oil and sand companies that make up a consortium called the Pathways Alliance believe that reaching their goal of net zero by 2050 will create 35,000 jobs, create work. They think they stand to benefit here if, and it's a big if, if it's done right. That's not to discount the fears. That's not to discount the concerns. It's certainly not to discount Ottawa dismissing the fears themselves. But they see opportunity here. Where other people see doom or transition, they see opportunity. Saying the success of it could create a boom in the oil-producing provinces, equivalent to what happened in the 80s and the 90s. So to get some clarity on this, joining me now is Kendall Dilling. He's president of the aforementioned Pathways Alliance. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So when I say the term just transition, uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Yeah, you know, and that's the unfortunate part uh, of that, to be honest, Ben, is that historically that term has denoted transitioning workers from one sector of the economy to another when that sector is being shut down. Right. I think that's why there's been such a visceral negative reaction to it, certainly in Western Canada, because... You know, our view in the industry is that this is actually about creating a, a whole bunch of new industry jobs focused around clean tech and decarbonization. And it's not really a question of transitioning workers out of the industry. And, and, and I think that's why there's been, been angst. Yeah, which is unfortunate because it seems like we shouldn't be arguing about the semantics of it when we know the sort of the transition has already kind of begun. And we're in a good position to be a big part of it, I would think. Yeah, 100%. I mean, speaking for the oil sands and the industry largely, we are, you know, 100% committed on this path to net zero. And not only will that then allow us to operate our core business for as long as there's, the world has demand for oil, and that will last for some period of time, and we will provide what we think will be the best, most responsibly developed. And with the implementation of these projects we're talking about, a fully decarbonized uh, barrel of oil to to those global markets. And so that in itself is a huge contribution to reducing Canada and global greenhouse gas emissions. But then on top of that, we become experts globally in these areas, whether that's carbon capture and storage or hydrogen, uh, many of these clean tech areas, and allows Canada to be at the table in terms of supporting what's estimated to be a $150 trillion global energy transition that will occur over the next few decades. The Americans are pivoting hard with the Inflation Reduction Act and all the incentives they put in place for clean tech. They want to be world leaders to, first of all, transition their own and future-proof their own industries, and then sell that intellectual capital and the manufacturing support and everything to this broader global market that's going to be in huge need of those those skills. And Canada's got a bona fide opportunity to to be part of that as well. Because when you look at it, and I've, you know, the, the CEO of Sonovas spoke about this, uh, there is job creation and opportunity in the transition. We may not, that doesn't matter what we call it, uh, that there is room here for job creation and economic development within this. It's not necessarily, I feel like the political conversation is always sort of a zero-sum game, and I don't feel like you're looking at it that way. No, I mean, honestly, Ben, we're worried that we're not going to have enough people. We're already labor-constrained in this country and when you look at the tens and if not hundreds of billions of dollars that will be deployed on decarbonization, infrastructure, transition projects, 
renewables, alternatives, everything, hydrogen, critical rare earth minerals. I mean, there is a huge amount of work there. It's the next big boom coming in Canada. And we're more focused on where are we going to find the people and get the skilled trades and, and technical skill sets we need to support that work. What how, what do you make then of, of the political fighting over this? Because, I mean, every side, there is no partisan issue here. Everyone sort of has their own stance and they like to repeat it. But if you're looking at it purely from uh, the economics of it, from the business sense of it, where you are, uh, what do you see? What is the political fighting helpful? Is it hurting? Does it does it harm the business? It's it's interesting on this one. I I don't think we're actually in substance all that far apart, but it got off on the wrong foot just because of as we talked about the language. I understand Alberta's concerns with that to the extent that if it is interpreted as shutting down the industry and transitioning people out, uh, of course you know that would be concerning, and I, I think. Premier Smith's language around this being an evolution, not a, a transition out. Those comments are very apropos. And we're taking the federal government at their word at this point. They've quickly, you know, on the heels of this, come out and said, you know what, we're talking about job creation here. We're talking about training. We're talking about reskilling for this new clean tech future and these opportunities. I'm actually kind of hearing the same things from all sides but we, yeah. we just kind of got cross-threaded right out of the gates there. You wouldn't know it. Sometimes the politics gets in the way. Uh, what would you like to see in this transition legislation that we're expecting? Yeah, you know, I think if that creates vehicles, whether those are policy instruments or training programs to, you know, encourage young people to come into the trades, that, that's a big problem, frankly, in Canada right now is, Young people don't seem to be interested in those kind of jobs. And that's really where the future need is, more so than a lot of the professional uh, roles. We need lots of skilled workers and tradespeople. So getting you know that demographic excited about that opportunity, uh, there'll um, for sure be a need to move people around within the country and reducing barriers to doing that. Um, and frankly, bringing in um, workers from outside of Canada, as we've done in the past when we've had these periods of, of extra, you know, a real peak of construction activity and, and enabling us to get in, uh, you know, the skilled workers will need to do this work. So to the extent it's, it's about accomplishing all those things, then uh, it will be a net positive. And, and when it comes to this idea that it that it could, I mean, I know you you've expressed concerns in the past about some of the targets that have been mentioned in other legislation. Um, but what wouldn't you like to see in that in that legislation when it comes to the best business, best case scenario for for the consortium? I mean, I guess Ben, what I would say is I would I would hate to see anything that would suggest that oil and gas is going away anytime soon. At some point, this world won't need oil and gas anymore, and we could all argue, I suppose, on how long uh, that's going to take. But as long as there is a demand, we need to be aggressively decarbonizing the production and use of fossil fuels, parallel path with developing alternative and non-emitting sources of energy. You mentioned it earlier, uh, you know, the Democrats in the U.S., the Biden government has poured a ton of money into trying to get on the front foot when it comes to the sort of transition as we will continue to use that word just because uh, it's not forget the quote unquote just transition. We'll just call it a transition. Uh, but your, your consortium came out today to say that uh, that the government could be doing more here too to help Canadian companies keep on the same path as the Americans right now. 
Yeah, it's really a question of pace and timing, Ben. You know, as a sector, we're committed to net zero by 2050 and are hard at work. We've got hundreds and hundreds of people working at this. We've spent about a half a billion dollars on our phase one plan to date and, and are continuing to, to spend and, and move this these projects forward as fast as we can. But there is a limit to how fast we can move. And, you know, the government's ambitions by 2030 are more than we can sustain as an industry, that scale of reductions at that pace without support. And I, you know, we understand the the reasons for their extremely ambitious agenda. I mean, there's the climate imperative we spoke of, and there's our international commitments. And then there's situating ourselves to be global leaders in in this emerging clean tech uh, transition opportunity. So all that means is to advance these projects at that scale, at that pace, then it's got to be a public-private partnership. And the U.S. is clearly moving very aggressively on that. And if you listen to Deputy Prime Minister Freeland in the fall economic statement, Canada certainly recognizes that and is seized by the fact that we need to be competitive or investment capital will tend to flow into the U.S. and will struggle to attract the capital we need to decarbonize our own industries here. I guess that's part of the issue is where does that, that where does that capital go, right? I mean, therein lies lies part of the problem. I mean, the question always comes up, and I know this is cyclical for your industry, but you know, you're enjoying some good times now. Of course, the public looks at that and says, well, we have hospitals to pay for. Why should we be paying for this? Why should tax day payers dollars go into supporting this? What do you say to that? Yeah, so we are coming off a a, a good period here from a commodity price cycle perspective. Of course, only a couple of years ago, uh, many of our companies were were on life support. Really, the last year and a bit has allowed us to uh, restore our balance sheets, pay off a bunch of debt, uh, return some money to shareholders who had stayed with us patiently through that period of time. And this is actually all hugely positive because we're now in a position to actually be able to fund these major decarbonization projects going forward. So we you know, hope that you know, prices remain robust, and that's more money that will we will deploy, and we will deploy our billions and billions of dollars as an industry for sure. But again, in order to do the scale and pace that the government is looking for, a public-private partnership is is really what makes sense, and that's what's being modeled in Europe and the United States and all around all, all over. So, you know, we just need to be realistic about that, and 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 make sure we're putting Canada in a position to to compete. Well, Kendall Dilling, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Ben. This is a job posting that may be of interest for you. If you're looking for a little change of scenery, you can come out and join me here on Vancouver Island or nearby. Um, You may have thought that all lighthouses were automated by now. Most are. There are still 50 remaining of the 241 major ones that are staffed. 23 in Newfoundland and Labrador, 27 in British Columbia. Now, this may be what popular imagination sees as lighthouse life. This is a trailer from a movie called The Lighthouse. Before this beacon was built, she took hundreds of lives. Perhaps she's still hungry. I know you do not want me here, Tom. We have a job to do. We are the only light in the vast, deep darkness. We live and die to keep those at sea safe. 
Very dramatic stuff, right? Very dramatic stuff. Um, but in fact, the Canadian Coast Guard is indeed looking for assistant lightkeepers to work at lighthouses around British Columbia. It talks a lot about the need to be handy. It talks a lot about the need to be have experience with either isolated or semi-isolated locations, along with working in a marine environment, of course. But what must it really be like? I mean, so much about it seems so alluring, right? You get to move to a quiet island right on the right on the ocean you get a million dollar billion dollar view really um how amazing could it be right but what is it really like what is the work really like what about the isolation uh to fill us in on that joining me now is retired lighthouse keeper jim abram he lived and worked for 18 years at cape mudge on quadra island which is a 15 minute ferry ride from Campbell River here on Vancouver Island, and he joins me now. Jim Abram, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for the invite, man. I appreciate it. So tell me about, I mean, I think a lot of us know what a lighthouse looks like, but we can't imagine what working in one might be like. Tell me a bit about uh, why someone might want to do that for a living. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, people have this sort of, vision of lighthouse keepers as you know the the old codger sitting in a rocking chair with a smoke and a pipe reading a book and uh, just looking out the window and boy that's certainly not light keeping light keeping is a full-time gig and um, it's done by men women and uh, one family two families it doesn't matter kids also live with those families they take part in the duties and and chores but you know, imagine if you're a homeowner, imagine having more than one house to have to maintain on your property. And some light stations have two or three houses and a number of outbuildings, engine buildings, uh, fog buildings, the tower itself. My God, you know, uh, what a monument, an icon, iconic monument of Canada. A lot of the things that used to get done strictly by light keepers are done now a lot by bringing in crews from the, the Coast Guard base in Victoria right. uh, to do a lot of the jobs. And, you know, it's like but, I've got photos of me hanging off of our 60-foot tower painting it. Wow. Well, it isn't done that tower. way anymore. It's, <laughs> I guess work safety would, oh, you would, pre- would prevent you from doing that. But I was reading about it. There was so many facets to, 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 to your day-to-day job. There were so many facets to it that people wouldn't know about. Well, you know, it starts at like three o'clock in the morning where you get up and you go out and you do a weather report because, you know, the the weather reporting that is done by light stations is not just used by mariners. It's also used by aviators. And we have one of the biggest seaplane fleets on the coast, on the BC coast. But, you know, the light keepers give those weather reports every three hours on the second to... The Marine Communication Centers, which are the Coast Guard radio stations, and we transmit to them. They then transmit to Rescue Coordination Center. They transmit to Atmospheric Environment Service. Uh, There's a whole family of people connected here through Coast Guard. Coast Guard is one big family. Right. Um, Tell me a bit about, about what we all think of as a lighthouse keeper's main duty, which is distress, right? Yeah. Well, distress is certainly something that we deal with. Uh, Lightkeepers have saved numerous lives up and down this coast, pulled people out of the water, 
gone out and rendered assistance by just even, you know, simple things like replacing a spark plug or or providing gas for people that are out of gas or, you know, towing somebody. Um, but, you know, that's mainly taken care of by the search and rescue people. But sometimes the light keepers are the first on scene. So they do that. They also, the distress part of it is preventative in the weather reporting because by people having proper weather reports, they either go out or they don't go out. And that's right. everything from a, you know, a tin boat, 14 foot tin boat, clear up to a huge uh, ocean liner or a, a cruise ship. You know, they listen to to these reports. One of the things that came out was the isolation aspect of it. Even in this latest job um, posting, they talk about having had to have that experience with either self-isolation or isolation in, at work. What was that like? Well, the, you know, it's it's one of the things that they always warn you about and is certainly always a possibility. But the isolation is not so bad because of the fact that usually it's two families on the station. So you have interaction with other humans. You have your own family if you have a family. And um, you also have a network of people out there that you deal with all the time, either on boats or through the Coast Guard or a helicopter landing or a station boat landing or whatever. So you, it's not like you're, you know, you're completely isolated. Uh, certainly, you do have to know how to take care of your spare time. And most light keepers, uh, the ones that stick around and remain as light keepers to provide the service, they know how to do it. And um, they're the ones that are the longtime light keepers that stay and, and uh, continue to provide the most cost-efficient service of anything in Canada. Right, such as yourself, right? Not, I mean, you, you got used to the isolation. What? How did you do that? I was there for 25 years with my family. We had... You know, I had uh, two kids, and um, they grew up on the stations, and we had another family. They had two kids, so, of course, there was interaction there, and um, we worked a uh, uh, sort of 12-on, 12-off shift where you did your weather reporting, but you also worked together during the daylight hours to do the jobs that needed doing, like the painting, the maintenance, the carpentry, the whatever and that was a nice, the really nice thing about light keeping was when you got up in the morning, you never really knew what you were going to be doing. You're kind of an island unto yourself, and no pun intended, aren't you? Yeah, well, pretty much. But, you know, like I say, there's boats out there that you talk to and you get to know the skippers on the boats. You get to know the people in some of the stations that are closer to civilization. You know, they may have other people that they talk to. Um, and the stations are getting more and more technology all the time right. that we didn't necessarily have when I was a keeper. But, you know, there's um, Internet connections are coming in more frequently. There's, of course, satellite Internet um, and the radio communications are becoming um, more usable, more user-friendly user for the light stations. Tell me about the technology part of it, because I think people listening out there might think that it, by 2023, that all of Canada's lighthouses would be fully automated and you wouldn't need the human presence anymore. But you've long fought to make sure that didn't happen. What's the importance of having those, especially the ones, I mean, I, I gather it's just the ones in BC and Newfoundland and Labrador now, but what's so important about having a human presence yeah. at those light stations? Well, you can't replace the human eyes and ears and brain with the automated equipment. And the automated equipment, you know, there's not really much pushback on that. 
it's great to have automated equipment that works if it does. And that was the big, you know, bugaboo with the automation at the first was the automating of the foghorns just didn't work. And it still doesn't work very well. But if the light keepers are there, they can babysit that horn and make sure it's on when it's supposed to. If the light goes out or something happens or whatever, they can either fix it themselves or they can call in help from the Coast Guard who are always quick to arrive on scene. Automating something is one thing, but taking people away is a totally different thing. And automating is okay in certain instances. The removal of the staff to do all of the other things that they do is not okay. You know, they do marine mammal sightings. They do bird sightings. They do all kinds of environmental testing. They do water and salinity. I mean, my God, we've got an ocean that's acidifying and yet we still test the water at light stations for 60, 70 years of record so far. It's one of the most valuable pieces of information that scientists use on the acidification of our waters. And so I imagine if someone's applying for a job now as an assistant lightkeeper, you're confident that this will be a job that will be around for a while. I am totally confident because I have a letter from the minister and the uh, the Senate and the prime minister saying basically that they do not intend to take a run at light stations again because of the fact that the public has spoken loud and clear that they need people on the lights to make sure that they are always functioning the way they should be and that we are making good use of the infrastructure that Canadian Coast Guard has supplied by building these light stations. I mean, they're in 27 spots here and 20, 24 on the East Coast. They're there because those are the worst spots on the water. <laughs> That's why they're there. So, you know, it's really good that you can have some a human presence. There's nobody else living around there, not very, or very few people living around light stations. There's some First Nations that are very close to the light stations, and they're getting more and more involved with the Coastal Guardians, which is a great program. And, you know, that just means we'll have more people that will be doing more of the distress-related issues. If, I, if I'm if i looking at this as a position, what, what's the best part about the job? What's the worst part about that job? Well, the best part of the job is that you're living in, you know, a million-dollar view place. You're living in nature. You've got, you know, huge, some places have huge pounding waves on their shores and some don't. But... You know, you're basically in nature, and you have that always to fall back on, to be a part of, and you are serving the public. You know, that's the, the best thing that I found about lightkeeping was I could legitimately say I was 100% a public servant. Thing. The worst thing was when there was a marine tragedy. Sometimes you were lucky and you got to pull people out of the water in your station boat and take them in and warm them up and feed them. The worst part was when that tragedy didn't go so well and you had to deal with death. And, you know, that that was very trying in the olden days. In these days, when I say olden days, I'm talking about when I was there yeah. in 78 to 03. But now... You know, there's pretty much immediate uh, contact with a search and rescue station, with a helicopter station, with somebody to be able to get out there 
and take care of those issues. You don't necessarily, as a lightkeeper, have to do it. Um, any advice to anyone thinking of applying for one of these assistant lightkeepers jobs? Any, any, I, any... I, you know, I helped sort of push the Coast Guard uh, communications people to concentrate on getting lightkeepers because from talking with the Coast Guard, you know, top dogs at the base, right up to the assistant commissioner, um, we knew, I knew, and everybody knew that we were short of people. And when you're short of people, you can't run the station. So, you know, getting that ad out there was one of the best things that they could have possibly done. Uh, I On my own Facebook page, I've got, it. I don't know, something like 200 hits on that particular item. And people are still doing it. They're still every day. There's some coming in. But the best thing that I can advise people that are looking at it is apply now. Do it. You know, it goes until 2023, I believe, December um, for the application process. But get your name in there. You'll never regret it. Well, Jim Abram, thank you so much for your for your stories, your insight on this. Ben, I just enjoy it. I could talk about it forever, but I know you've got only so many minutes. The resignation of Jacinda Ardern yesterday sort of prompted a bit of this one, this next story we're about to do. And it was a bit about um, sort of empathy and the ability to, to connect. And I found one of the things that was most fascinating about Jacinta Ardern, and it doesn't matter what you thought of her policies or her politics, was she was an incredibly gifted communicator. And she seemed to have this ability to connect. And this was two-dimensional as well. She was able to do this while doing videos, while doing, you know, while speaking in public, while giving speeches to the, you know, speaking in front of the UN, amongst other things, appearing on talk shows. She just had that knack. And it got me thinking about that whole notion of communicating. And one of them, of course, is all about first impressions. You don't get a second chance to make a first impression, obviously, as the old saying goes. Apparently, in less than one-tenth of a second of seeing someone for the first time, our brain processes information about the person's face, which leads to quick conclusions about our, their qualities, uh, about such things as trustworthiness, competency, friendliness, honesty, morality, all of it. This was published back in 2006 in a magazine called Psychological Science. And this dates back to evolutionary times when, for survival purposes, obviously, we had to assess friend or foe. That's where our next guest comes in, because making a first impression can be really tough. Or is it? Or is it? Do we worry too much about it? Do we do it badly because we plan too much? Do we take the wrong approach? Are there little things we should be doing that can really help us out? Or are we self-defeating about it? Do we talk ourselves out of it? My next guest says it's actually really easy to do, and he explains how. Nick Boothman is the author of How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less. That's not long. And Convince Them in 90 Seconds or Less. So minute and a half well spent. Nick Boothman, thank you for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> this is a fascinating story because it has a great, you know, we use the term origin story way too loosely now. But it has a really fascinating origin story with the job that you did long ago, which was fashion photographer, photographer, and how you had to develop rapport to do that job properly. Well, yeah, I mean, pretty much, you know, in any job, you, it's all mostly about getting on with people. You know, right. life, life doesn't happen without talking to strangers, and neither does business, and neither does love, really. So uh, at some point, it's kind of important. 
Yeah. And then you decided to really focus on that. So tell me about this notion of the survival of the friendliest, so to speak. I don't know where to begin. When I do this with my audiences, I say, look, okay, how many are we in here now? 400 people. Imagine we're right. on a cruise ship, something happens, it sinks, all we go, we go to an island, all we've got is our life jackets, the clothes we came on, and we came ashore in. Now, really, <laughs> is it going to be the survival of the tough guys that make this happen? Or is it all of us working together? There's sun shining above, we've got no water to drink, we need to divide up into teams and do this and do that. In other words, I'm sorry, Darwin, but, but you know, you had a good point. Well, look, obviously, I'm not going to knock him. I lose too many readers that way. But, yeah. but, it, but it is survival of the friendliness. The only reason that our particular strain of uh, Homo yeah. sapiens survived and my Neanderthal cousins didn't yeah. is because we could get together and work together and do stuff like that. What's and, happening right now? What's happening right now? You, you, we're a couple of strangers we met for the first time and you're making some magic here. Well, exactly. I mean, that's the whole point of it, right? It is. And we yeah. enjoy it. We enjoy it as as a group, too. We like watching. I mean, that's why people eavesdrop, eavesdrop on good conversations or listen to other people's conversations. We enjoy the connection, even if we're not the ones making it. Oh, listen, and has the Internet affected that? You betcha. You know, it's all it's all a big snoop. <laughs> you know, oh, what's she doing today? What are they eating? Well, I, why aren't I eating that stuff? Like, why don't I look like that? Well, they don't either. Okay. Yeah. Tell me, I mean, you, you spent a lot of time talking about the first impression. I think people are really intimidated sometimes by the notion of first impression. I think it's all ingrained in us, the whole you never get a second chance. And you've really tried over time to ease people's fears and give them some tips on how to make those first impressions better. But it can be intimidating. Why is that? Well, that's, you know, the number one, the number one reason people die is because of their self-talk. Okay, we eventually talk ourselves to death one way or the other. And, and you know, you can talk yourself into saying, this is terrible for me. Or you can stop for a minute and say, well, you know, in fact, I, I, in my new book, which, uh, which I'm finishing now, one of the little things I talk about is changing got to to get to. I got to go to the doctor. Well, actually, I get to go to the doctor. I'm really lucky. I'm one of the few people no, in the kidding. world that can do that. Yes, yes. You know, uh, I've got, yeah. I've got to make my bed. Uh, well, I get to make. I've got a bed, man. I get to make my bed. You know. Well, I get to make a. I've got to make a first impression. No, I get to make a first impression. And it's going to take me somewhere. Something's going to happen because sooner or later, one thing leads to another, etc. And that's that's how it goes. And so, yeah, first impressions are huge. Uh, but, you know, they are, if, if you actually look at what a first impression is, it is simply finding common ground with somebody else. That's all a first impression is for. You talk a lot about that, about assuming rapport, so that you don't assume the other person's not going to want to talk about something. You just sort of throw it out there, provided it's not too, I mean, I know there are boundaries, but you're trying to look for something that, um, that says, I, I, I want to get to know you. Well, it's not that complicated. No, no. Assuming rapport is you just start talking to someone as if they're your favorite cousin or you had lunch with them last Sunday. Wow. Uh, that's, what, that's what we just did. That's what, that's what people who are really good at this can do. They just, I mean, I have tons of examples. My books are all about show, don't tell. They're all about story. To, my books are just stories about people that can do stuff and those that can't. And, you know, I had a couple of stories about me. I was standing in a, an art gallery looking at a painting and suddenly I can feel someone standing next to me. They're just more or less assuming my same body language as me, which is perfectly not. Well, I'm doing it now, but we're only voice here. But, <laughs> but, and uh, they just leaned over and said, 
not bad, eh? And I said, no, I, I quite like that. And then we were chatting like, you know, we'd known each other, we'd grown up together. That's, that's what assuming rapport is. If you've been waiting for a bus in England, the Brits are great. They'll stand there talking to the bus. They'll be going, oh, God, look at the weather. Look at it again. Can you believe <laughs> oh, it? Yeah, I've done and that. And they're just yakking away. I mean, that's really what it is. You just, it's just that it gets simpler as you get older and you could care less about, you know, what someone thinks of you. But there's no reason you can't start doing that. Now, just start chatting to people. Uh, and, of course, the goal is to find a common ground. When I do uh, briefings and for, for corporations and there's, I don't know, a conference call with seven or eight people on the line, you'll, I will always find that the CEO, if they're a good CEO, they will find common ground with me in about most 20 seconds, which is not difficult. They say, oh, you've got an English accent. You know, I love London. You know, and then we're, right. we're off. We don't need to shake hands and say, awfully nice of you to talk to me today. No, just get yakking. I, I, and you mentioned the the talking in the queues, waiting for stuff in, in in London. What I always found was we always talk about the propensity for the English to wait in line. I always was more fascinated by what it is that they talk about because it's a huge part of the queuing process is the chatting process. I waited in the queue to see the Queen lying in state. And the whole time we just chatted, the whole line chatted, everyone talked to each other and no one broke rank. No one left, like no yeah. one butted in. It's sort of a familiarity that's assumed right across. You're kind of in this together. And there's a certain cohesion, social cohesion there too, which is pretty awesome. I, and I, I, and I, a I lot of common ground and a lot right. of common ground. You're all lining up to do the same thing. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just, we are, we've scared people to death about saying, you know, stranger danger, don't talk to strangers. You know, don't talk to strangers who've got their trousers down around their ankles and their <laughs> raincoats wide open. Don't talk to strangers if you're walking down a back alley with $5,000 in your hand and you count it. But most strangers, they are your ticket to, to anything you want in the future. Just practice talking to safe strangers for starters. In other words, people, familiar strangers, people you, you maybe pass in the corridor um, but don't speak to or whatever like that. That's That's my recommendation. Is it difficult? I mean, you mentioned that it's not difficult to assume rapport, but I think it, it is difficult sometimes to try to sort of not make it seem like it's contrived. Or does it matter? Does it matter whether how you, Who cares? How you come up? Yeah, Who there cares? Is. You know, if someone's rude to you or they don't want to talk to you, well, fine, nothing lost. You've got a bit of practice in. And it's fine. Look, most people are in a hurry. They've got stuff on their mind. They're not thinking, I'm going to... You know, I'm going to chat, especially me. I'm not exactly a particularly charismatic or attractive-looking bloke. I mean, I'm not exactly Clint Eastwood or, or anything like that. So, you know, but I just got used to <laughs> Listen, I have been rejected so many times growing up, frankly, Scarlet, whatever. So you just, I mean, developing a bit of a thick skin is always an important part of that too, right? I mean, you need to be able to to not get discouraged. It doesn't always work. It's about what do you want, Okay. It's not about, and if, if what you want is for people to like and talk to you, then you're way off, way, way off target. If what you want is just to spread a little bit of peace, just to chat around, just to be, make life lighter, or if it's in business, you have a goal, that's what matters, not whether they're going to lift their nose up. Well, you, in friendship, you can pick who your friends are, but in business, you walk away from a relationship or from a person, you're walking away from your job sooner or later. So uh, just get over it and, and, and make mis look, make mistakes. The only way you're going to get better at anything in this life is the more mistakes you make, the better. 
I was just writing so, about Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx. She was saying, I mean, she, she turned that as a kid, basically, as a, into a billion, $5 billion business. But she was saying, she would, they would sit around the table, her and her brother and her father, and well, the family having dinner. And once a week, the father would say, okay, how many mistakes have you made this week? And they'd high five every mistake they'd spoke about. They're good for you. Now you're getting somewhere. I did the same with my kids. They can talk to anybody. They can make a speech at the drop of a hat because they just practiced it. They didn't get a chance to say, I'm shy. There's no such thing as shy anyway. Cautious and reserved maybe, but shy is not a human attribute. No. Um, Nick, you've often talked about this idea of, we often call it sort of, uh, you know, good attitude, bad attitude. You don't really like that dichotomy. You think we should be looking at it different. Oh, I don't get it. <laughs> a good attitude, a bad attitude, a positive attitude, a negative. No, what I talk about is really useful attitudes. You know, what is a really useful attitude when you meet someone for the first time or you just meet a friend again? Really useful attitudes are things like welcoming, resourceful, enthusiastic, caring, any of those. Those are really useful attitudes when you meet someone for the first time. Bored, hostile, rude, or appearing that way. Those are really useless attitudes. You know, I have people all the time and say, well, when people get to know me, they really like me. Well, you know what? Uh, That's great for your family and your next door neighbor and anybody else who can't escape you. But when it comes to business or friendship or relationships, most of us, we can all remember when we were welcoming or we can all remember when we were curious. That is an attitude. It's your your voice tone, your words you speak, and your body language all saying the same thing. And that means when when those things happen, people will trust you. I mean, they'll trust you. I mean, they'll believe you rather. I mean, you might be a a villain. And if your words, your voice tone and your body language are all saying the creepy stuff, well, they'll believe you, but they don't want to be with you. But what I'm saying is that because it is your attitude at the beginning of an encounter more than anything else that determines your success or failure, because your attitude not only drives your behavior, it drives other people's behavior. We respond to the energy, the quality and the quantity of the energy that other people give off. The energy you give off, you've got a smiley face, you're smiling all the time, you're grinning, you're paying attention, you're doing eye You know, it's easy to talk to someone who's like that. I was really curious to, to know what you thought of many of the things that we've been talking about um, since the height of the pandemic. Firstly, I think a lot of people had kind of lost practice when it came to face-to-face encounters because we were, other than people we already knew, we were sort of deprived of them for a while. And I feel like we're all trying to get used to it again. And it was harder than than I think a lot of us expected. Yeah, if you have expectations. <laughs> true <laughs> enough, true enough. So what do you, what do you expect? You know, I, I, listen, I had a guy once, it just reminded me, I had a guy, I have people, I do these speeches, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and I love them. And then I get the people come up at the end and they start asking me questions. And sometimes I'm thinking, are you serious? But I had one guy come up and said, I'm really worried about my son. He does not do eye contact when he talks to people. Do you have any advice? I said, how old is he? He said, he's four already. I'm thinking, you need more help than that. (laughs) But I get this all the time. People have these expectations. of Look, you're just a normal person. Go out. I, I talk about look them in the eye, smile, and open your body language. These are the elements of a first impression. Adjust your attitude. Look them in the eye for a second. Look, it's easy. If you're not good at it, just notice what color of the eyes are of the person you're speaking to. That's all. A smile, because eye contact says trust is in the air. 
and you, we all know what it's like when you don't get eye contact. A smile in our culture says that, that person is, is, is happy and confident. My first book, Like You, is actually unofficially, because I'm not a, a doctor or a psychiatrist, is unofficially recommended by the Asperger Society. Because I yeah. do not say, tell them to smile, tell them to make eye contact. I say, find out what color their eyes are. In order to get a good smile, just say the word great over and over in bursts of three. Great, 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 <laughs> under your breath. And you'll find as you approach, not when you get there. Just so great, great, great. Yeah, just smile. don't say it out loud. Yeah. You know, and that makes you, you end up with the eyes smiling and your mouth smiling. And then synchronize your body language. Look, it's really simple. And it happens, you know, when the book first came out, I made people like you in 90 seconds or less. People say, well, that fast? No way. I said, look, it happens in two seconds. But if I called it, how to make people like me in two seconds or less. People would have thought I was really loco. But the Harvard School of Health Sciences did the best research on the topic. The title of their paper read, students seeing a two-second video clip of a teacher with no sound came to the same conclusions about that teacher as students had spent an entire semester with them. We respond to their attitude. We always respond to other people's attitudes, right or wrong. And you can't stop people responding to your attitude. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, exactly. We're wired that way, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's who we are. Well, Nick Boothman, thank you so much. That's great. Thank you. Well, this was another shock in Hollywood today, sort of. I think uh, actor Alec Baldwin and a weapons specialist will be charged with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a New Mexico movie set back in October of 2021. Uh, the 64-year-old actor, who's perhaps one of the best-known names in Hollywood these days, given nearly four decades on screens big and small, from The Hunt for Red October all the way to 30 Rock, was on the set of a movie, a Western, called Rust uh, in New Mexico when cinematographer uh, Helena Hitchens was killed. Now, the 42-year-old cinematographer was struck by a live round of ammunition, fired from a prop gun held by Baldwin, who maintains that he did not pull the trigger. Director Joel Souza was also injured in that incident. The cause of death for, um, for the cinematographer was listed as gunshot wound of chest, manner of death as accident. Still today, um, prosecutors have gone ahead and said they're going to file these charges. Um, the gun with the live round was provided to him by Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was responsible for guns on the set. Now, Baldwin has consistently denied responsibility for this, saying uh, a live round should never have been allowed on the set. Uh, but Mary Carmack Altwies, who uh, is the New Mexico prosecutor, said today that uh, an actor had a duty, the actor had a duty to check before taking the gun. This scene, as it was taking place, was a rehearsal. He shouldn't have even had a real gun. He should have been using a rubber, or a plastic gun, um, and he certainly was not called upon to pull the trigger. That is the Santa Fe District Attorney uh, uh, speaking there. So they are going to go ahead with those charges. A lawyer representing Baldwin says the decision uh, distorts Hitchinson's tragic, tragic death and represents a terrible miscarriage of justice. Meanwhile, a lawyer for Hitchinson's husband, Matthew, also released a statement tonight saying that they wanted to thank the Santa Fe Sheriff and the District Attorney for concluding their thorough investigations and determining that charges for involuntary manslaughter are warranted. So what happens now? How much of a surprise was this? Joining me with more on this is Nima Ramani. He is a former federal prosecutor and CEO of West Coast Trial Lawyers. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. 
So, I mean, I've been reading a lot of the people were writing stuff several months ago about this, thinking that this was probably likely. Is that your sense as well, that this is not a huge surprise that these charges were laid or are about to be laid? Well, when the Santa Fe district attorney asked the legislature for additional funding for a prosecutor and for someone to handle PR, that was a clear sign that charges were going to be filed. You don't ask for a PR person to file against Armour or Hannah Gutierrez-Reed or Assistant Director Dave Hall. But what was surprising is the nature of the charges. There's two different involuntary manslaughter counts, but one of them has a firearm enhancement, which carries a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. And if you're going to put Baldwin away for potentially five years or more, why do you give a six-month probation deal to Assistant Director Dave Halls, who's arguably more culpable than Baldwin is? Yeah, I mean, there was some talk today about how no one gets special treatment and so forth. But yeah, I guess if they hired a PR person, they were expecting a lot of interest in this. So what happens now? Well, the next step would be a preliminary hearing where a judge will determine whether there's probable cause to move forward to a jury trial. That's a low standard. I expect the district attorney's office to be able to meet that standard. But a jury trial is another question altogether. Baldwin has a lot of money and resources, and he's already hired some of the best law firms in the United States, Quinn Emanuel, Wilson Sonsini, and I fully expect him to litigate this case and do so very aggressively. He's not going to agree to any type of deal. He's not going to voluntarily go to state prison. So we're probably going to have a jury trial on our hands. Wow. I mean, that in of itself is going to be uh, be quite the spectacle. I mean, what exactly does the prosecution have to prove here when it comes to the allegations uh, that somehow Alec Baldwin uh, should have known that danger was involved or that he acted with willful, willful disregard, for instance? What do they need to prove here? Well, the district attorney seems to think that Baldwin had an independent duty to inspect the gun. That's something that she said during her press conference today. But there's other potential bases for criminal negligence. We're talking about the fact that this gun had previously discharged on set. There were live rounds on set. Some of the staff members were engaging in target practice. But setting aside the issues with the production, one of the potential arguments will be, what did Baldwin do himself? Even though he was told that it was a cold gun, it wasn't loaded or it had blanks, should he have been pointing it at another human being? He admitted to cocking the hammer and pulling it back. And even though he said he didn't pull the trigger, the FBI report concludes the opposite, that he did indeed pull the trigger. So I don't know if it's going to be one of those factors or a combination, but that's going to be the prosecution's theory of the case. This is what made Baldwin criminally negligent and responsible for Helena Hutchins' death. That he should not have been pointing that weapon, regardless of what he thought it was uh, or how dangerous he thought it was, he should not have pointed the weapon at her in the first place. That's going to be one of the arguments, as well as the independent duty to inspect. You shouldn't have relied on Halls' representation. And his defense all along has been that he relied on the crew to do this for him and had no idea that if he was told uh, the gun wasn't, uh, didn't pose any threat, that he had no reason not to believe that. That's a very good defense. You have an armorer who's on set and whose job is to maintain and inspect these weapons. You have an assistant director who's handing you the weapon, telling you that it's a cold gun. The question for the jury is, is it reasonable for him to rely on that representation? Right Here's your assistant director who's telling you it's a safe gun, and he went with it. The district attorney obviously disagrees, says that you can't rely on your crew members like that. So it's going to be an interesting question for 12 jurors to decide. 
And the armorer has been charged as well. And I gather just from reading what Alec Baldwin's been saying for quite a while, a, a lot of the fingers are pointing at her. What kind of trouble is she in here? Oh, she's in a world of trouble because her only job is to make sure that these weapons are safe. And she breached that duty of care. So of all the individuals involved, I believe she's the most culpable and manslaughter charges are appropriate. And so the question is Dave Hall's, you know, where does he fit in? And he's the one making this representation without checking the weapon. So for me, that makes him the next in line in terms of responsibility. But the district attorney's office gave him a slap on the wrist. No jail time, six months probation. So that's really a head scratcher there. Yeah, why would they do that? I mean, he he took a plea, right? So why would they allow that to happen in a set in a case that they know people are going to dissect as we are tonight? I don't know the answer. It's really surprising that you would there's such a huge disparity in the potential sentences. You want to give someone no jail time who's more responsible than Alec Baldwin, and you want to put Baldwin away for five years in prison? Doesn't make any sense. How long before we could see um a jury trial unfold here. And is there any way that it doesn't go that way? Is there anything that Baldwin can do between now and then to stop that from happening? Well, in the New Mexico Speedy Trial Act, the trial has to happen within six months or actually 182 days of arraignment. Now, of course, that's Baldwin's right to a speedy trial. I fully expect him and his lawyers to waive that right and push this out probably to 2024. And there's always a possibility of some sort of plea bargain, but the prosecution and the defense are so far off from one another. You know, really, it would be a huge about face for the district attorney to charge Baldwin with a five-year mandatory minimum sentence and then turn around and give him a misdemeanor or a no-time felony. That would be walking back from these charges in a way that would really be unprecedented. You either believe that Baldwin is criminally responsible for Hutchins' death and you hold him accountable and you put him in prison, or you don't charge him at all, or you give him a you know, misdemeanor or that no-time felony that Dave Hall got out the gate. So I think the parties are going to be too far removed to really come to any sort of resolution. And there's the other issue for Alex Baldwin to consider. He's an actor. He cares about his reputation. He cares about his career. You know, if he agrees to a sentence that involves state prison time, he may never act in Hollywood again. Yeah, I mean, you get the the impression from afar here that uh, given the tragedy, that given just the absolute tragedy of this woman's death, uh, that both the district attorney didn't feel they had any room to move. They couldn't be seen not to be enforcing the law. At the same time, uh, Alec Baldwin had no room to move either because he clearly believes that he, as tragic as this was, that he wasn't criminally responsible for this. Right, and you nailed that. At the end of the day, District attorneys, prosecutors, they are elected officials, and there's a lot of political pressure on them in a case like this. And, you know, there may be some other reasons. Maybe this prosecutor wants to make a name for herself, and by prosecuting and convicting Baldwin, she'll potentially advance her career. A lot of people think that celebrities in America, they get a free pass. They really don't get a free pass from prosecutors. A lot of them go after them more aggressively. What they do have an advantage in, though, is jurors. Jurors tend to love celebrities here in the United States, and they do very well when they go to trial. He, there's been some other civil stuff going on in the background. I believe that Alec Baldwin settled with, with the family of Helena Hutchins, did he not? He did. He settled with Matt Hutchins, um, the husband of Helena, who actually happens to be a lawyer here in Los Angeles. And well, as part of that civil settlement, Matt 
said that this was an accident. He didn't believe that criminal charges were warranted. And he actually got equity in the movie, Rust, and an executive producer credit. So I know Matt probably has a financial incentive for this movie to be completed and distributed. That's probably not going to happen now that these criminal charges will be filed. Yeah, and yet there was a statement, I think, today on behalf of him uh, from a lawyer saying that uh, that the involuntary manslaughter charges were warranted. I guess it wasn't necessarily specifically about Baldwin, but could have been about the armorer as well. It could be, and I know Brian Tanish, uh, the Hutchins family lawyer, worked with him. And you know, sometimes uh, you know, attorney and client may not be on the same page, or they may have a disagreement. But that civil case has been resolved, and there's a confidential settlement that's been paid out from Baldwin and the production company, probably some insurance companies involved as well, to the Hutchins family. But it's an entirely different case. You're talking about civil negligence, a much right. lower standard. You know, the example I like to give. If I'm driving home today and I rear-end someone, I'm responsible for, you know, his or her injuries. You know, that's civil negligence. But for me to be prosecuted criminally, I need more. If I'm texting and driving and I kill someone, that's criminal negligence. If I'm under the influence of drugs or alcohol going 120 miles an hour, well, that's gross criminal negligence. So that's the sort of standard that the prosecution needs to meet here. A mere mistake, an accident, just not enough. Right. Yeah. The yeah. Certainly, the the uh, the burden of, of of proof is, or the burden of of proof is different. And we remember that from many other famous cases, uh, no doubt. Now, as as Baldwin himself not filed a lawsuit against uh, some of those involved in the movie for this alleging negligence. Well, yeah. He yeah. So when he was sued, he cross complained against others like the manufacturer and so forth for indemnification, so they can make him whole. He actually sued his own production company because there was an indemnification agreement that. If he were to be sued because he knows he's the deep pocket, they're going to reimburse him for his legal fees and costs and damages. So there were some sort of cross complaints, but I believe that's all been resolved as part of the civil settlement. So not to to go back to the criminal case and not to ask you to get it, look into a crystal, crystal ball here, but do, do you think there's a chance that he could be convicted here? There's a possibility. You never know what 12... Uh, Strangers who can't get out of jury duty will do. And and this is a very unique case, really unprecedented for a prosecution like this. There have been deaths on set, but for someone to be prosecuted criminally, an actor, a high-profile individual like Alec Baldwin, this this isn't something we've seen in U.S. history. So um, it's going to be tough to say what will happen. Sometimes you see these criminal cases and you, you know that you're marching towards an inevitable guilty verdict. I don't see that here. I think Baldwin's team, they're going to litigate this case very aggressively, and I could see them actually winning. And I guess it'll change some of the the culture on movie sets as well. Uh, Nima Romani, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me.